something. It's good to see you this morning as we meet together, as we worship, spend time in God's Word, and fellowship together. It's good to, to have times like this so that we can um, visit, so that we can share, so that we can be close to one another. As we take our Bibles this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn back to the book of Jonah where we were a few weeks ago. Um, Chuck's message last week on Psalm 139, we give thanks for his series in that psalm. That's such a wonderful psalm and for the blessings of being in that. I thought today we would take a second look at the book of Jonah. Um, and I wanted to look with you today at chapter 3 and into chapter 4 so that we can uh, continue in our study there. So I'm going to begin reading at Jonah chapter 3 at verse 1, and I'm going to continue into chapter 4 through verse 5. So we remember always that this is God's Word, it's His truth, it's what He's given us to live by, it's His uh, inerrant and infallible Word. Then the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, <clears throat> the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, Taste anything, let them feed or drink water. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. This is God's word. Let's have a word of prayer together and ask for the Lord's guidance and direction for us. Father, we thank you that we can pray today, that we can pray and ask you for real help 
We know that the days of Jonah are a long way from us, that these are um, so many years before uh, we were ever born, so many centuries, and we can't take in a lot of these things, and yet we understand the commonalities of human behavior. We understand how Jonah is, and we feel at times, Father, uh, that we don't understand how you're working. We don't understand what you're doing, what you're doing in history or what you're doing in our lives. But we know that we trust you and we pray that even this morning as we study your scripture, that we'll grow more and more in faith and obedience so that we follow you and trust you in the ways that you lead us. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. The book of Jonah is uh, one of those books that raises a lot of questions for us. It raises questions about things in life. Um, it raises questions certainly about our friend Jonah. Uh, we talked about last time about how Jonah responded to God. We, we talked about his, uh, his character a little bit. We want to look at that some today as well. But it raises questions about evangelism and sharing our faith. We talked about that uh, two weeks ago. It also raises questions about nationalism and dealing with other nations uh, and their other nations who are our political enemies. And we deal with that every day in the newspaper, don't we? And then it raises questions about Israel's responsibility to be a light to the nations. We saw from the Psalms. That that was Israel's calling always, to be a light to the nations, to proclaim the one who was coming, who was coming to change the world. And it raises questions about Jonah. Uh, was he a hero or a rebel? At times he looks, sometimes he looks like the hero when he eventually obeys God. Sometimes he gets angry at God and looks like the, the rebel who just hadn't changed his mind at all. So it raises questions also about the nature of God. What is the nature of God? What is God's nature like? How is, how, how is his character displayed so that we can understand him? So today I'd like for us to take just this second look at the book of Jonah. And I want us to look at the character of Jonah. I want us to look at the response of Nineveh. And I want us to look at the character of God as we examine these two chapters. Well, let's talk about Jonah for a bit uh, and look at his character a little. Um, what was it that we saw about Jonah when we first were together, when we looked at him? We saw Jonah is a man that got a command from God. And when he got the command from God, the first thing we notice is he goes the opposite way. Instead of going 500 miles to the east, he turns and goes 5,000, tries to go 5,000 miles to the west. Instead of going to the capital of the Babylonian Empire, just a few hundred miles away, he decides he's going to get on a boat and try to go to an obscure fishing village in the farthest ends of what he could imagine as the end of the world. I mean, it'd be like us wanting to go to Hong Kong or Bora Bora or something, you know, trying to get as far away from God as we could. Well, Jonah tried. He rebelled against God. He tried to run from God. He tried to go to the opposite end of the world. He 
got on his ship, and even when he was on the ship, he couldn't even stand on the deck. He wanted to go down to the deep hole of the ship, go down where his bunk was or his hammock, and to get in that and to stay there and just ride out the storm, ride out getting away from God. Now, he tried not to witness. You know, the character of not only does he rebel, not only does he run, not only does he hide, but he tries not to witness. The guys finally have to run him down, the sailors. And they finally run him down. They say, our gods aren't working. Our gods aren't concerned for us. Maybe your God will care about us. Who is your God? What's he like? And he finally says, well, my God is the God of, that made the sea and the dry land. He's the God of the heaven and the earth. And, uh, but he tries not to witness to them. He's, it, they have to pull it out of him. They have to, who are you? Where do you come from? What, what is all this about? And he didn't want to tell them that the storm was his fault when the storm came. At the end of chapter 1, Jonah was basically telling the pagan sailors, I would rather die than go do what God told me to do. Pretty, pretty poor testimony. Pretty poor testimony from a guy who's supposed to be a prophet of God. And in chapter 4, he says the same thing. I would rather die than see Nineveh repent. So Jonah doesn't look like a hero, does he? When you look at this book, you see that Jonah just doesn't look like a hero. Now, in chapter 2, let's give him his due. In chapter 2, he does turn around after he's been confronted by God in the, in the great fish. He does turn around a little bit. He tells God, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. What I vowed I will pay because I know salvation is from the Lord. Now, that all sounds good. It all sounds good. But we, when we get him to chapter 4 again, again, he's just not behaving at all. He's so angry at God. He's so angry that the Ninevites repented. He just wanted to see them judged. He just wanted to see them nuked. You know, he wanted to see them gone. Well, when you think about the people that we look at in the Bible... A lot of times we realize that there aren't too many heroes in the Bible, are there? Because the Bible is so honest about us. It's so honest about our character and our nature. It's so honest about us being sinful people and fallen and so prone to do the very things that we shouldn't do. We look at our heroes like Abraham and we stop and we think, well, Abraham lied. He lied about uh, he, he lied to Pharaoh about his wife being his sister and put her in danger in the harem of another, of a king. He, we think about David. David didn't discipline his own son when he became a murderer. We think about Job. He didn't trust God and wanted to answer to God. He demanded an answer, actually. He said, God, you've got to give me an answer about why you're doing all this to me. Paul when you look in the New Testament, Paul votes in favor of killing all the new followers of Jesus. And Peter is the one that repeatedly is getting into trouble when he speaks up. He, 
He gets in trouble with Jesus. Jesus has to look at him and say, get behind me, Satan. Then he denies the Lord three times. You know? We, we see that there are just not a whole lot of heroes in this book. The apostles, when, when Jesus gets arrested in the garden, they all run away, hide, don't want to admit that they're followers of Jesus. So it just goes on and on. So there are just not many heroes here. But it's because we're all flawed, aren't we? We're all sinful. We're all fallen. We all need a Savior. We all need the Lord to help us to change. None of us should be accepted, just like David, Abraham, and the others. None of us really should be accepted. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, the mercy of God, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, we couldn't be accepted, could we? It's only because we have a Savior. Now, Jonah looks really bad in chapter 4. Jonah looks really bad in chapter 4. I mean, if you read all of chapter 4 and look at it with any care, you're, you're going to see Jonah's just angry and pouting. He's sitting over there, you know, he's just, he's just sitting there. He's so angry with God. He waited for the judgment. You know, he preached. He was excited because he was going to go preach. This city's going to be destroyed in 40 days. That was great as far as he was concerned. You know, he was excited to go preach that message, so he went all throughout the city saying, you guys are going to be overthrown in 40 days because of the judging hand of God. Well, they, God withholds his judgment. The people repent. Jonah sits there in, angry, in, in an angry mood looking at the city because nothing's happening. The city's not crumbling. It's, the walls aren't following, falling in on it. No fire came from heaven. So he's, he's angry. And God even looks at him and he says, do you have a good reason to be angry, Jonah? And he says, yes, I have a good reason to be angry, even to the point of death. In other words, I'd rather die than see these people repent. And then Jonah looks petty and hateful. Because God says to him at the end of the chapter, you cared more for the shade, you cared more for that little plant that I caused to grow up to give you shade from the hot sun. You cared more for that plant than you care for all the people of Nineveh. You cared more for that plant than you did for the 120,000 people in this city who don't know their right hand from the left. And most of the Bible scholars are saying, you know, He's saying here, God is saying to him, you cared more for that plant than you cared for the spiritual salvation of those people who don't know the difference between worshiping many gods and worshiping the true God. They're just completely spiritually lost. You don't care. Well, how would you feel if God said that to you? That he'd said to you or me, you care more for your comfort than you do for 120,000 people who are dying and going to hell. Well, you see, that would be a hard one to take. You remember Hudson Taylor? Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China in the 1800s. And Hudson Taylor, once he understood the gospel, once he understood the, the needs of people in other parts of the world, he looked at China and he couldn't sleep at night because of the nightmares he had. 
he kept having nightmares of all of those people in China just walking into destruction and oblivion. And every night, you know, he would have these nightmares about people dying under judgment in China. He just couldn't stand it. In chapter 4, we don't see <clears throat> Jonah's nothing like Hudson Taylor. He cared far more for that simple plant that gave him shade from the hot sun than he cared for the eternity of those people in the city. Now, the book of Jonah talks about Jonah's character, and, and it's interesting that we know something about this today so that we can learn from it. But it not only talks about Jonah's character, but it talks about the response of the people in Nineveh to Jonah's preaching. In chapter 3, it says, Jonah submitted to the Lord and went to Nineveh. And when he got there, he said, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That was, of course, the message that he was excited about giving. But when the people believed, you know, what did they do? It says they did what people did in that culture. They tore their clothes. They put on sackcloth. Instead of their nice, comfortable clothes, they put on very uncomfortable uh, clothing. They put on, they wrapped themselves in sackcloth and they put ashes on themselves. And that was a way of saying, we're repenting. We're repenting of our former behavior. Now, of course, the people of, of Nineveh had a lot to repent about because they are known and were known in history as being a very brutal and violent people. They were so brutal, you know, that they that they brutally killed their enemies. I talked to you a little bit about that before. And they were one of the first cultures there that crucified criminals and so forth to get rid of them. So this is a very violent, brutal culture. I don't, I don't know what we would compare it to in our world, but it, a culture that would be known for its brutality and its violence. The pagans in, in, um, in Nineveh were certainly like that. But it's interesting to me that even the pagans that were on the boat with Jonah were, in a sense, those pagans were more moral, and even the people of Nineveh were more moral and more spiritually alert than Jonah was at some of these points in his life. Think about it for a moment. The people of Nineveh repented. They heard the preaching about God's judgment. They heard the preaching about God coming to deal with them about their sins. They repent. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They reform their lives to a certain degree. And then the pagan sailors on the boat, when we look at them and we see that they seemed to be really changing because um, when they use the name of God, they use Yahweh. They use the covenant name of God. They use the name of God that, that indicates more of just a general relationship to God but more a personal relationship to God. The sailors on the boat um, were the kind of people that seem to repent of their wickedness too and turn from their old ways. You, you look at them and you see them uh, pray to God. 
It says they feared the Lord greatly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. So the, the sailors, the pagan sailors who were worshiping all kinds of gods on that, in that boat, they were more spiritually alert and aware certainly than Jonah. And they were responding to what Jonah said. They prayed. They used the covenant name of God. They offered sacrifices and they made vows. So, you know, you can see that there's some change taking place. These pagans are responding better to, <laughs> to the message of God than Jonah is. The sailors were and even the people in Nineveh because they reformed their lives. They were changing their behavior. Uh, they were, from the king on down it says, they were taking off their ordinary clothes and putting on the clothes of repentance. They were behaving differently. They were living their lives in society differently. They were, instead of being as violent as they were before, they, were, they held off their, their violence. And I don't know how long it was before Nineveh was eventually destroyed in another war, but it was some time later that God put off the judgment that he was going to allow them to undergo, and he let that judgment fall a good many years later. Now, it does seem that, um, that this, the preaching had that effect in Nineveh, that there was more a social reform uh, than a broad revival, what we would call a revival. But change is still change, isn't it? Getting away from their violent ways is still good. Not murdering people, not crucifying people, not being so brutal to their enemies, not cutting off their hands and their feet and then shaking their hands when they bled to death in front of their, you know, when they took their captives. That was, that much change, not being like that anymore, was good. Their repentance was not as much spiritual, it seems, in the city of Nineveh as it was a social reform. They quit doing some of those things that they were known for doing. Now, all of this kind of reminds us that we as Christians can have a redemptive influence on society around us. We as believers can make a difference where we are. That's why... Christians have always been at every level and strata of society. We've been, you know, from uh, working in ordinary jobs to running companies to in government to philosophy, law, whatever, medicine. We've had Christians in every layer and strata of society. And Christians in each place, we're supposed to be those that make a difference wherever we are. So we're supposed to make a difference whether we're working in the factory, whether we're working for the president. Whatever we're doing, we're supposed to make a difference for the sake of the gospel. We're supposed to have a redemptive influence wherever we are, whether teaching school or whether it's, you know, working in in the Ford Motor Company, for the Ford Motor Company. God has given us that role to make a difference wherever we are. You can think about uh, back in the days of William Wilberforce, who was so key in bringing an end to slavery in the British Empire. He, he worked on that 
for 40 or more years to see the end of slavery. They ridiculed him. They laughed at him. His votes were in government, the parliament. They worked under, against him and in such a way that he kept getting the, it almost to the point where he had enough votes and then people would turn their back on him and they'd vote with the other side and slavery would continue. But Wilbur, Wilbur, William Wilberforce kept working and kept fighting the evils of slavery and God used it. Now, not everyone was converted that listened or heard Wilberforce speak, but the difference that he made in society is huge. The difference that he made in the English, in regard to English slave trade and their place in the world and that effect that it's had on us has been uh, a major influence. So we can make a difference. Not everybody's going to be converted that hears you witness to your faith in Jesus Christ. But it does have a difference and it does make a difference. Society still gets better even if not everyone is converted. Now the book of Jonah also leads us to reflect on God's character. What does it tell us about God's character? What is what kind of God is the God of the Bible? Well, you know what Jonah said in chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2. He said, Please, Lord, was it not this, what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. You know, what he says sounds a lot like what God said to Moses in uh, Exodus chapter 34. You know, when the Lord appeared before him and the, Lord's, the Lord revealed himself and he says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities, transgressions, and sins. That was the revelation that even Jonah knew. Jonah knew that revelation of God. He didn't understand how God could be both loving and merciful, which he sensed, as well as just and holy, which he wanted. You know, Jonah didn't understand the character of God. He knew that the Ninevites were brutal, that they were wicked, that their, uh, the direction of their lives was toward idolatry. He knew that they crucified their enemies, they burned their enemies' cities, they took the best of the citizens and took them away and retrained them and made them servants in their empire. Didn't they deserve to be judged? Jonah said, yes, they deserve to be judged. Didn't, they, didn't their cities deserve to be overthrown? Yes, their cities deserve to be overthrown, he said. So how can God withdraw his hand and how can he not judge this people? He didn't get it. He couldn't understand it. He says, what kind of God is this who's just and holy, but how can he be loving to these people who've done so much wrong? Well, another question could be asked, how could God tolerate a prophet like Jonah? How could God tolerate a rebel like Jonah? How could God tolerate somebody who ran the other way, who refused to witness, who hid from God? who wouldn't help and witness to lost people and cared more for his own comfort than for them. 
How could God not give up on Jonah? Well, chapter 4, Jonah's still angry with God, isn't he? He's still bitter. He's still petty. He's still trapped in his hatred of Israel's political enemies. He idolized his own nation and its political success. What kind of God can put up with Jonah? That's what he should have asked. What does the Bible tell us about this God, about his nature? He is just and holy. Just like Exodus 34 says, he's just and holy. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, it says. But he's also loving and merciful. Think about all the message that we see throughout. We not only see God forgiving and forestalling his judgment on Nineveh, but we see John 3.16 where he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Or Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He cares about people in every in every part of society, doesn't he? You know, God just doesn't care for the rich. He doesn't just care for the poor. He cares for the rich, the poor, the middle. He cares for everybody. You, you look at Psalm 72. Now, it's interesting that the scripture does say God has this special love and care for the poor and needy. And that's one thing you remember when, when Paul was going to go off and preach the gospel, what did the early church tell him? Paul, don't forget the poor and the needy. Don't forget to preach to the poor and the needy. That's something we need. It's easy for us to say, as conservative type people raised in the South, it's easy for us to say, well, the most important thing is their salvation. And it is. But you know, we forget about the ministry to the poor and the needy. We forget that Jesus healed a whole lot of people. We forget that Jesus went out there and fed 5,000 at one time and 4,000 at another time. And that was only the heads of the households. There were probably 20, 25,000 people. Jesus is out there feeding them and taking care of them. Jesus stake, he, he has this, you see all throughout the scripture, this wonderful care for the poor and the needy. Psalm 72 says, the true king will deliver the poor and the needy when they cry for help. Psalm 82 says, God takes his stand in his own congregation. God asked this question, how long will you judge unjustly? When will you vindicate the poor and the fatherless? When will you rescue the weak and the needy? In Proverbs 19, he says, whoever has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. And what about how Jesus did? I mean, you look at Jesus' ministry, and you see Jesus constantly going to the needy person. He's walking into a, a, into a city one day, and Jesus is met by a group of people who are carrying a young man out to be buried. And the poor widow behind him, his mother, is weeping and crying along with the other mourners. And when Jesus walks up to her, he goes over to her. What does he do? He lays his hand on that widow of Nain's son, and he raises him from the dead because that poor widow was brokenhearted over the death of her son. And then when Jesus went to the festival, what's the first place he goes to? The first place he goes to is not where all the scribes and the Pharisees are in the place where he can debate them. He goes to the place 
at the pool of Siloam where the broken people are, where the lame, the blind, the people that are, had crippled arms and crippled legs, the people that couldn't move. When we were in, when I was in Senegal at different times, we would park our cars near the market and there was this one young man that was there at the market and he had no legs and he was on a he was on like a little sled with rollers and he propelled himself with his hands in the dirt and his job was to sit down there in the car park and he would watch over your car while you were in the car park and you gave him some money you know to guard your car to protect it when you go to the third world where Jesus was in that world, you see the poor and the needy, you see the broken, you see the blind, you see the lame, you see the people with no legs. And you say, these, God cares about these people. He didn't just think about us and forget them. God cares about these people, the poor, the needy, the sick, the blind, the lame, the people with withered arms and legs. Because the Bible says one day, what's God going to do? He's going to renew all of creation. For those who know him, it's going to be wonderful because the world is going to be made new. There's going to be a renewed earth. We're going to have renewed resurrection bodies. We're going to live in a renewed, restored creation. We're going to live in the creation that's like it was before the fall. The beauty, the joy, the excitement of the redeemed creation. We have that to look forward to. And think about all those poor people who've come to faith in Jesus and whose only hope was Jesus because they had no hope in this world, because they had no hope of having enough, or they had no hope of having a job, or they had no hope of having a family. But God renews them and gives them hope through the gospel. What about God's love of foreigners? Abraham was a foreigner, an outsider. He was a moon worshiper, more than likely. He was just a pagan. God brings in this foreigner who's a, who's a moon worshiper. What about the people that in Nineveh? God didn't have to go after those people, but he goes after them and he takes the good news. He takes the good news of himself to them. When Paul was in his ministry, where did he go? He went to pagan Roman citizens who had idol, idol, idols and idolatry in their culture. They, they worshiped in temples that were filled with prostitutes. They had, um, they had selfishness. The rich were living on this level and the poor were living on this level. They had the Colosseums for entertainment. I mean, the killing and the brutality. The Apostle Paul's taking the gospel to that culture. To people who hate the things that you and I may hold dear. The Apostle Paul was one. Jesus is the one you think about how he took the gospel to a woman whose whole life had been given over to the sexuality, hoping that she would find Love by giving sex to men. The woman at the well, she'd been married five times to five different guys and then she was living with another guy. 
What about God cares for the legalists, the scribes and the Pharisees who sat in the book all day long and all they could think about was the book and how to make the book and, uh, and their 600 pages of regulations, how they could exclude some people and make themselves feel good. They read that book over and over and looked down on everybody else. And who does Jesus go to over and over and over again and calls them, call them to repentance? He called the legalists, the Jewish scholars, the scribes, the Pharisees. What kind of God do we have? The character of the God of the Bible is one who doesn't, it's not his joy to destroy the wicked. What does it say? God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You know, but that all men would come to repentance. The book of the Bible that we're reading, Jonah, tells us that Jonah wasn't like that. That Jonah's heart wasn't like that at that point. You know, you and I understand better than Jonah did because we live on this side of the cross. On this side of the cross, you and I know that God is loving and merciful as well as just and holy. We know that God can be both, that His character of love is based on His character of holiness, that He's loving and holy and true and just, and that all of those things are certain facets of His character. We know that on the cross, He displayed His love for sinners by letting His only Son die in our place, die to pay for our sins. The cross is that perfect picture, not only of love and mercy, but of justice and holiness, because on the cross, the penalty for sin was truly and perfectly paid. We see that the cross teaches us that God is a God of justice, but a God of love, a God who, in which justice, it says in the Psalms, that, that love and holiness kiss each other, that there's that perfect blend in God's character and God's nature of that. The people of Nineveh repented and reformed their lives and God withheld the judgment. And it was a real picture of the way that God withholds the judgment on us because we deserve the full judgment of God. But God withheld that judgment because he poured it out on his own son, Jesus. And Jesus paid for it for us. The book of Jonah teaches us about hope and change. It teaches us the change that believing the gospel can bring. This book in the Bible is here because Jonah told somebody. You know, we wouldn't have this if he hadn't told somebody. Even what it tells about him, even when he had to reveal him at his lowest and worst state. He had to tell somebody about this, about what he felt, about what he prayed. He had to tell somebody about his sins and his failures and his self-love. We wouldn't have this book if Jonah hadn't told someone about how God worked in his life. And you see, the hope of the gospel is that we will love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength like we're called to in the gospel and be so changed that we love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Jonah. We thank you that Jonah was honest enough with someone to tell them 
about how he failed. And we thank you that there's so much change here, the change that we know can come because we've been changed. We thank you that we can be changed by the good news of Jesus, that we can be transformed so that we can indeed be stand, stand up for justice and holiness, but we can also stand up for love and mercy because we know that these are the marks of your character and your love for us. Help us this week that we would be more fit to be your representatives in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.